Welcome to Planet Watch. Big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, a conversation with Scott Wing, director of fossils for the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Scott's work has focused around studying the last time the planet heated up enough to cause massive changes during the Paleocene-Eocene boundary and what that can tell us about the changes that are to come if we continue burning fossil fuels at the current rate. We'll have that interview you, for you in just a moment. And this show, Planet Watch, has a podcast to which you can subscribe. You can go to the website, planetwatchradio.com. And we'd like to offer special thanks to MZ for sponsoring this program on local station KSCO AM 1080. And a special shout-out to all of our listeners and friends in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Carborough area, where we are heard, and also Columbus, Ohio. Thanks so much for listening to Planet Watch. We so appreciate that we have three different parts of the country all chiming in. We'll have a short look at the top stories in science this week, and then Joe will share his oddball stuff uh, with you and the answers to a couple of riddles that have been hanging there for a couple of weeks. So we'll catch up if... You have been one of those people to chime in on the answers. You'll find out whether you were right in just a moment. But first, some news from our interns from Cabrillo College Journalism Program. And Maya Rodriguez will kick us off. According to a new report, climate change may be drying out the fertile Midwest. Researchers at the Lamont Doherty Observatory of Columbia University studied data from nearly four decades and found that the divide between the humid east and the dry west of the United States has shifted about 140 miles east. This divide has historically been marked by the 100th meridian west, the line of longitude that runs north to south from the Dakotas, I'm sorry, through the Dakotas, Nebraska, all the way down through the west half of Texas and so forth. Scientists state that the marker was once accurate in dividing the dry climate of the western states and the humid climate of the eastern states. However, global warming appears to have caused the west aridity to spread eastward. According to scientists, rising temperatures and shifting wind patterns have caused increased evaporation from the soil and a decrease in rainfall. Scientists say that the shift will not have immediate effects on land use. However, they are confident that it will progress further east and eventually force farms to adapt to a drier climate. Certainly farmers are going to have to be adapting to all kinds of changes, including uh, rainfall patterns. And here in California, the, the pattern has been that we store our water in the form of snow up in the Sierra. And as much of that is going to be starting to fall as rain, um, different catchment systems may have to be invented to capture the water as it melts off so early. Now, Tommy has a story about uh, something having to do with shipping. Yeah, Nations at the UN International Maritime Organization meeting in London have agreed on the first emission limits for the global shipping industry. The 173-nation body agreed to a 50% reduction of global emissions from container ships, oil tankers, bulk carriers, and other vessels by 2050 from 2008 levels. Shipping and aviation were two sectors left out of the Paris Climate Agreement, and aviation agreed on a separate emissions plan two years ago. Both industries will require major investments in new fuel types such as biofuels, ammonia, and hydrogen. Electrification and more energy-efficient designs will also be required to meet the goals, but have only been tested on smaller ships so far. The compromise is much weaker than what delegations such as the European Union and smaller island nations wanted. The U.S., Russia, and Saudi Arabia were among nine countries who objected to the deal altogether. Yeah, you you know, uh, if you're interested in uh, the possibilities for electric boats and shipping, uh, we actually talked about that some on uh, one of our shows last summer. If you go back through the planetwatchradio.com archive, it was in July, I think, uh, we talked about the possibilities for electric shipping. Great. There, there are alternatives to a lot of these uh, dirtier Effluence and things like that, that, that apparently shipping is uh, one of the worst. And uh, ferries. Yeah. Ferries was another application uh -huh. for that. Yeah. Well, also speaking of the ocean, but from a different angle, an Atlantic Ocean current that helps regulate the global climate has reached a 1,000-year low, according to two new studies in the journal Nature. While scientists disagree about what's behind the sluggish, sluggish ocean current, the shift could mean bad news for the climate. 
the Atlantic Meridional, I'm sure I said that wrong, Meridional, overturning circulation, let's just call it AMOC, shall we? <laughs> Most people do call it by its acronym, and there's good reason for that. Often called the conveyor belt of the ocean, exchanges warm water from the equator with cold water in the Arctic. The AMOC plays a key role in the distribution of heat across the Earth. But that is being disrupted by melting ice, particularly from Greenland, causing larger volumes of fresh water to flow through the oceans. While there's an ongoing dispute about what is causing the slowdown, scientists agree that it could have a dramatic impact on ocean ecosystems such as coral reefs and deep-sea sponge grounds, as well as a potential impact eventually on the weather um, in places like England and um, northern Europe. Yeah, it could make uh, a shutdown of the Gulf Stream and this related uh, meridional current uh, could lead to extremely cold climate in uh, much of Europe, uh, starting not all that far in the future. Well, all as part of global warming. They think that, that possibly the last little ice age was caused by a shift in that current. And it's down, mm. um, they're using two different measurements. 15% down is the agreed upon amount that it has decreased in terms of its forcefulness. And someone... Uh, in one of these articles, I believe it was in Nature, said that's equivalent to um, many of the great rivers of the world just stopping. That's the 15% of the decrease in that current um, is equivalent to the great rivers just halting their flow. That's how much water is moved by the currents. They also uh, have two different measurements. One was starting at the industrial age, and the second was much more recently. Um, so when we started burning lots of fossil fuels. So they're using two different measurements, two different time spans. One, um, because they weren't measuring, you know, carbon dioxide emissions a long time ago. And the other uh, was having to do, you know, with the general temperature, which they have been measuring. So there's two different measurements. They both show a decrease. And they think it's because of the increased amount of fresh water coming off the glaciers. Yeah, in fact, a related phenomenon is these things that they call chimneys of uh, descending salty, cold, dense water, which kind of drive this current. And those chimneys have been alarmingly slowing down or even disappearing. Uh, there's like one big one left. And um, anyway, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned for that and a lot more. It's it's not a certainty that it'll keep slowing down or stop, but they are concerned enough because 15% is not nothing. So they, we'll be having some future reports on this, I'm sure, as we continue to monitor them. Yeah, and all this talk about uh, meridians. Uh, remember uh, Maya's item was talking about the 100th meridian, meaning 100 degrees west longitude that crosses the heartland of the U.S. Um, a meridian is a line, a north-south line. It, it Your meridian, wherever you are on the surface of the Earth, passes straight overhead and through the north star or the due north point and due north-south. And uh, a fun little item here is that I've been meaning to bring this up anyway. You know AM and PM when you state the time? <laughs> Uh, you may have heard that those stand for ante-meridian and post-meridian. Well, that, what that means is ante, before the meridian, is before the half of the day when the sun is to the east of your north-south line, your local meridian. Post-meridian is the half of the day when the sun is to the west of that meridian. So that's what those times mean, a.m. and p.m., by solar time. Not exactly clock noon, because that varies due to our orbit around the sun being an ellipse, and sometimes the year we're traveling faster around the sun, other times we're traveling slower, so clock time and actual solar time are, are not usually the same exactly. But anyway, fun little fact about meridians there. Okay, well, thank you. And we had a couple of riddles that we wanted to answer um, because I'm sure people have been hanging on our every word from the last two or three shows when we had a riddle. But I think you probably, because who knows who was listening then, and our memories get worse over time. Mine does anyway. Perhaps you could repeat the riddle. Yeah, yeah. Or the quiz and then the answer. Yeah, well, actually, we did have a couple of people uh, email in uh, from various places in the country on uh, each of these riddles. Um, and uh, 
Just remind me, though, I did have one more little news story to report. But I think I'll do the riddles first because we've been putting that off did for I a couple weeks. Did I say something about memory? I forget. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I hadn't told anybody I was going to do this news story. I just came up with it just before the show. But it's worth talking about. But, hey, let's do the riddle. And, in fact, I want everybody in the studio to work on this with me, okay? Get your pen and paper. We're going to see who in the studio here comes up with the answer to this first. Uh, we've reported in the past that it's been known now for a while that uh, ExxonMobil, gigantic oil company, uh, has known for a long time about the damages to the climate caused by excessive use of their prime product. And another oil major has recently been busted as having known for at least as long, maybe even longer, you know, many decades, that the climate was in jeopardy if uh, lots and lots of people buy the stuff they sell. <laughs> well, anyway, um, that other company, um, their name shows up as the answer to this riddle. So now I want you to just write down two numbers on your paper and pen. Uh, and I want you to write the numbers in scoreboard style. Do you know what I mean by that? A zero would be like a vertical rectangle, okay? They're, they're very square, boxy numbers, you know? To get any of the nine digits, you just need, you know, some different subset of the seven. You know, there's four vertical lines and three horizontal lines. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, like, a, like an old style clock. Yeah, like, like, like a digital old clock. style digital clocks, like yeah, or clock. new style digital clocks, okay. like the one we're looking at here. So a one is just the two right-hand vertical bars, okay? And, and, you know, a five looks like a squarish S, you know, and so on, okay? So here, here's the number to write down, trying it with that style. 710, and then a space, and then 77345. What were the last few numbers? 77345. So write down 710, and then 77345. And do all those numbers in the boxy scoreboard digital clock style. And now turn it upside down. Now, did Maya... I'm going to try to visualize this just because I don't have a pen and paper. Oh, heck. <laughs> well, I wrote, it down, I wrote it down on this piece <laughs> of paper here for you. I'm doing it the way you would write the numbers. Now, see if you can visualize that. Anybody else in the studio? Oh, yeah. It's the name of a oh, big okay. <laughs> oil uh. company. <laughs> Shell Oil. <laughs> Shell Oil. <laughs> anyway, try that little Clever. exercise. Um, That's going to solve the shipping in the North, uh, North Atlantic problems, right? Yeah, or something <laughs> like that. Uh, let's see. We have until 22 minutes after the so hour. There was for another this. riddle, too. Yeah, yeah. There's another riddle and a couple other and things, who, actually. Did anyone win that? Did, did you want to get uh, out of Yeah, a couple people have, and I have already been in email contact with them. I forgot we don't get to, to shout out names. on the air? Well, oh, we, we should do that at some point. But uh, here, here's the other one. Um, and uh, this, this might take a little bit of thinking, but I was, you know, I said, well, we can all figure out which way the Earth rotates on its axis, right? If you think about the fact that the East Coast gets sunrises before the West Coast, you know, we're spinning from West to East because the sun rises in the East. So, you know, if you're looking down on the North Pole, which way does the Earth rotate? Clockwise or counterclockwise? If we're spinning from west to east. If you're looking down at the North Pole. Uh, if you're, yeah, if you're looking down at the North Pole. Because if you're looking up at, down at the South Pole, it's going to be the opposite. So if you're in space <laughs> looking down. Yeah, down on the North Pole of the Earth, which way is the Earth spinning? If, if uh, sunrises happen in the east before they happen in the west... Well, hey, this isn't even the riddle. <laughs> this, this I was saying, we, we all know this part. Well, we have What's a 50% chance. <laughs> yeah. <isn't that> right? <laughs> well, hey, I mean... Clockwise. Counterclockwise. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. You can't change your answer halfway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's counterclockwise. And just for fun, hey, think about this. That if you're looking down at the South Pole, then Maya's first answer was right. It would be clockwise. <laughs> because clockwise is counterclockwise upside down. Did you ever think about that? But that's, <laughs> that's not really thing. the riddle. We that's were... not the riddle. The riddle, and I think I'm going to punt this down the road for another week because there's other important astronomy stuff I want to share with you folks coming up this week. But the, other, the main riddle was, okay, once you got that out of the way, how do you then figure out which way the Earth is going around the sun in its yearly orbit? And the hint that I gave about that, I'm going to give you one more week to think about it, is that the stars rise earlier from night to night. They rise four minutes earlier, not later, from night to night. 
that piece of information is how astronomers first figured out which way we go around the sun, clockwise or counterclockwise. Again, let's just say if we're looking down on the North Pole of the Earth. Wasn't okay? that controversial at the time? <laughs> um, kind of. There were some anti-science people who didn't like that idea at all. Oh, the, you mean that we were even... Movie. Oh, yeah. In, in fact, I think Galileo had to whisper. He, he had to confess that he was wrong, but but he kind of muttered under his breath. There was a I march still for, say the earth moves. There was a march for science that he led downtown <laughs> yeah. you know, Italy or somewhere. That was just yesterday, actually. There was a national march for science. Uh, Galileo was leading the way. <laughs> well, now, speaking of astronomy kinds of things, um, this week, look for Venus and the crescent moon in the western sky. It's going to be a beautiful sight. The crescent is always my favorite, the Cheshire Cat grin. The moon it will be right next to Venus both Tuesday and Wednesday evenings. Right. Okay, well, I think Thank we've you, burned enough time here. <laughs> All right, and we're very excited to be able to uh, present an interview with Scott Wing, who is curator of fossils at the Smithsonian Institute and has been for several decades. He's a longtime employee there, director there. Scott Wing's research focuses on fossil plants with an emphasis on how climate has changed in the past and how ecosystems have responded to climate change. He has long worked to uncover the causes and effects of a sudden global warming event that occurred 56 million years ago. This event, the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, or PETM, has many similarities to current human-caused changes in the atmosphere and climate. Wing has also researched the deep-time origins of tropical rainforests. So let's hear from Scott Wing. When he was in town in Santa Cruz, we caught up with him. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm very happy to have as our guest today, Scott Wing. He is in charge of 40 million fossils at the Smithsonian Institution, and that's a big job. So I will just say welcome to Planet Watch. Thanks very much. Uh, of course, uh, there's more than just me uh, doing, <laughs> dealing with those 40 million fossils. There, there's a department of about 25, 30 people. So, and it's a good thing. Yeah, plenty of fossils to go around for all of us. 20 million or something per person. I, I didn't quite do the math, um, but uh, that's a lot of responsibility. And I'm sure that people going into these halls will see things, you know, from millions of years ago and interpret them and understand what happened to early Earth. And that's some of the work we're going to talk about today. Right. Yeah, we're, we're actually um, in the late phases of completely redesigning our paleo halls, the, the halls that, that uh, exhibit fossils and, and uh, the history of life. And uh, that's a project that's been going on for six years now. And we have uh, a little over a year to go before the new version opens up. But it's um, 30,000 square feet of exhibit space. Uh, it's going to be wonderful when it opens up. What's the oldest fossil in there? Um, there are fossils that are about 3 billion years old. That's, give us a perspective on what Earth was. Yeah, so um, the planet formed about 3.56 billion years ago. So, um, 4.56 billion years ago. The planet formed about 4.56 billion years ago. And, uh... There, there are chemical indications of life that go back about three and a half billion years. What is that fossil of? Uh, well, so the oldest fossils are, are really chemical rather than being physical objects. And then the oldest um, fossils that are really um, look like something are still just squiggles in... In their microscopic squiggles in rocks, um, they really don't look like much. In fact, they don't. You can't see them with the naked eye. That's how small they are. So, you know, their earliest life was was microbial, and uh, it, it's not the kind of thing you think of as you know. You break open a rock and go, "Oh my God, there it is!" You know, it doesn't. You can't see anything. So it's, uh, yeah. The the people who work on the really old fossils are. Um, a hearty lot. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe here, uh, back to more recognizable forms of life. I grew up as a kid in the uh, northern Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C. We'd go on school field trips to the Museum of Natural History, and the first thing that would always blow us away was this giant elephant in the lobby. Is that thing still there? 
The elephant is still there, Henry, Henry as he's known to millions. Um, yeah, he's not a fossil. He's uh, he's uh, from Africa. Um, came into the museum in the 20th century. Um, so he's uh, he's he's dignified, but but he's not a fossil. <laughs> not like the rest of us. So we um, are going to talk today a little bit about what you are learning about early Earth from fossils and what they can tell us about this weird period of time called the PETM, um, which was very hot. So tell us how you use fossils to figure out what life was like and what was it like back then, how ma many millions of yeah. years ago was it? Well, okay, so this is, so this is not uh, really the early Earth by the standards of geologists and paleontologists. It's, they, in fact, you know, I have colleagues who scoff at how recent what I work on is. It's only 56 million years ago. So that's considered to be kind of, uh, you know, practically nothing but dirt by some people. Um, but still, it's a pretty long time ago, 56 million years. And... Um, it's uh, this PETM, we, it's short for Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, uh, is a period of very warm climate um, that uh, starts extremely abruptly. So it, um, in a period of a few thousand years, and I always see people smile when I say very abruptly and then follow it with a few thousand years, but to a geologist or a paleontologist, a few thousand years is really fast. Um, and over that period of time, there was enough carbon released into the ocean and atmosphere that the planet warmed by something like um, 5 degrees Celsius. So what's that, 9 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, it, the ocean was acidified to some degree. Um, there were massive changes in where plants and animals lived on land. There were changes in the way um, plants and animals interacted with one another. Um, there was rapid evolution in some life forms. So it, it really dislocated a lot of the sort of standing uh, systems that, that um, were running. And it persisted for about 200,000 years. And then eventually it, it cooled off again. Um, so it, we're a lot of us uh, using this PETM event as uh, kind of um, a natural experiment almost that was done on the planet that lets us um, look back and we try to dissect out what the consequences of this giant carbon release were. And um, we hope to, by doing that, we hope to be able to understand sort of, you know, what's connected to what on this planet and how fast do changes take place? How fast are the reactions to those changes? And um, in the long run, that really should help us anticipate future changes as we add CO2 to the atmosphere. Our own actions are, are happening at something like 10 times the rate of the PETM. So there, there are differences between the past and the present, but there are also similarities. If you were to just plunk humans down on that earth, would we survive for very long? We weren't around back then, but if you just plunked us back in a time machine, how long would we last, do you think? You know, that's that's actually one of the nice things about this time period is it's, it is 56 million years ago, but that's not so very different from today's world. And if you look at a, at a map of the globe 56 million years ago, you recognize where the continents are. Um, and if you looked at, if you could go back there and be a bird watcher or a mammal watcher or something like that, you know, you would see familiar looking creatures. The plants would look very similar to today's plants in a general sense. Um, our, our first uh, kind of recognizable primate ancestors actually show up during this PETM event. So uh, lemur-like, broadly speaking, lemur-like primates show up right at the beginning of this event. So, you know, it's, it's, I think we would be pretty comfortable in that world. Um, the tropics in Antarctica. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would be, you know, from a global perspective, it's a very different planet because it's so warm from pole to pole. Um, but, um, but in terms of, you know, there would have been 
fruit, the fruits of plants that you would expect to be. I mean, you could you could find things to eat. There would be um, little mammals to chase down if you were inclined to do that. And so, you know, it really is. It's it's a world that's enough like the present. So when we learn something about how it worked, we feel we can apply that with some. Uh, certainty to the way the world still works. Should we take comfort in that? Um, you know, I don't know whether we should take comfort in it. Um, I I try not to use the the geological past as a sort of. Um, it's not about my uh, ethics or anybody else's ethics. It's it's really what we're trying to learn is how the system worked, right? So so the fact that it got warm, much warmer back then doesn't tell me that it's okay to warm the planet suddenly now. It's, that's not you know there are many bad things have happened in the history of our planet, right? Sixty six million years ago, a six mile in diameter asteroid hit the Earth and more than half of the species on the planet went extinct. Does that mean that's okay? No, you know, we, nobody, nobody looked, you know, as, some, as one of my colleagues said, um, be, just because they're natural fires, does that mean you don't carry insurance on your house? No, that's not the way it works, is it, right? I mean, we, have, we don't, that's not really what, um, studying the natural world doesn't tell you what it's okay for you to do. It tells you, how you should think about the changes you're causing. And we were talking with your colleague, Jim Zakos of UCSC, just recently, who's also done a lot of work on the PETM, that sudden extreme warming period. Um, and uh, he was saying that it's thought by many that what initially started that sudden pulse of carbon into the atmosphere was massive volcanism in several places around the globe, but then, more relevant to our lifestyles now, that triggered various tipping points and out-of-control circumstances where, you know, carbon dioxide and even methane got uh, into the atmosphere, uh, in, you know, overloading it and overheating things. Uh, and you could say we are uh, sort of doing our worst now to replicate that experiment, as you put it, with lots of little tiny volcanoes, namely tailpipes of cars and smokestacks and, and so on, where we're, we're just putting even way more carbon into the atmosphere faster than nature could do it in that extreme event. And the results, uh, well, who knows, <laughs> we may live to experience the beginnings of it, but future generations... Um, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? What does anybody think? Well, I'd, I'd say we already are experiencing the initial results of, of adding that carbon to the atmosphere. It's very clear that, that the effects have, have begun. They started um, some decades ago. So um, we are in the early phases of it. How far we go in it depends on what we do in the future. So I, I don't, um, you know, I don't take this as a um, an apocalyptic scenario uh, where the, you know, things are, I, I think what we do and what our children do and what our grandchildren do makes an absolutely enormous difference. I mean, you, you look at the projections ahead and, and um, things are, we, we clearly have begun to change the climate of this planet and it's going to continue to change. But the more... Um, the more carbon we add, the more it's going to change and the longer that change is going to last. So um, we, you know, we should be thinking very much not as a, a sort of, um, there's nothing we can do about this. We should be thinking there's a whole lot we can do, but our actions matter enormously. So I think that's... Um, you know, that's looking back doesn't make me kind of fatalistic. It actually makes me want to dig in harder to understand um, what Joe was saying about the um, about these feedbacks, basically. So, you know, so if you if you change one thing, you you release some carbon, and then when the climate changes as a result of that carbon release, 
does that release another reservoir of carbon? Do you get into a sort of vicious cycle where you you do A and that causes B and B causes more A and that causes more B and you know you sort of go up this spiral? And that's actually one of the things that we're really working hard on to understand about the PETM because, as you said, um, it looks like it may have been triggered by some volcanic activity, an unusually um, severe uh, period of volcanic activity. But then it looks as if there are other reservoirs of carbon. There's carbon in, in um, methane deposits in the seafloor. There's carbon in soils. There's carbon in permafrost. There are lots of places where there's carbon stored on the surface of the earth. And if you if those are if those are sensitive to changing climate, then you could kick off release of more carbon. So the volcanoes start it, then say methane clathrates are released from the ocean floor because the ocean got warmer, because the climate got warmer, that those methane deposits uh, dissociate and you end up with methane in the atmosphere. Methane warms the atmosphere, that warms the ocean, that releases more methane, or maybe it kicks off release of soil carbon, um, and that goes into the atmosphere. So you can imagine that there, there's the potential for these vicious cycles. And what we're trying to do is figure out whether those actually happened. I'm speaking with Scott Wing and Joe Jordan here on Planet Watch about old hot earth about many millions of years ago and what that can tell us about our current predicament. I wanted to ask you how you do study this kind of mystery about how this methane or carbon got released so quickly. What, what's the methodology behind your research? So there are a lot of people working on this, a lot of geologists working on it, and we, we sort of tend to take different approaches just so that we can gather more kinds of data. My specialty are fossil plants, and uh, the basic way I study it is to go out to places where there are uh, fossil deposits of the right age, and sometimes it takes years of work to find out where those are, and a lot of just wandering around looking and getting lucky in the end and um what are some of your favorite places to dig yeah, i mean i have yeah. images of people like you uh, with a bag backpack and a, a hammer a rock hammer you know and out in the desert with a hat that would be me uh, <laughs> often in wyoming there there are a lot of really great places to collect fossils and there's a spot called the bighorn basin it's in northern wyoming uh, between the bighorn mountains and the absarica and beartooth mountains on the west and it's uh it's kind of the happy hunting grounds for for paleontologists who are interested in this time period because it's uh, there are a lot of badlands there and the rocks that are being exposed in the badlands are many of them deposited close to this period of time and even so, um, it took me about a dozen years to find the first plant fossils that were from this warm period. So I, I knew I knew something about where where it was. I knew what hillsides to go to and start walking. And even though I knew that much, it took it took a dozen field seasons of going out there and and trudging around these hills and and looking and you know searching and, and eventually um, I found a am really amazing deposit which which uh, was so it was such a eureka moment that I actually was laughing and crying at the same time because I was I knew I could tell what it was you know must have been a huge uh, moment, especially after all those years and probably the very hot weather or cold weather trumping around in the Badlands, which isn't exactly a beautiful area if you're not um, a fossil hunter. So how do you know how old they are? I remember in grade school, carbon dating, the oldest game in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so this, this is all too old for carbon dating. And um, we determine the ages of rocks on the fly by looking at the fossils in them because species occur in sort of a sequence through time and you, if you have a, a reference to that sequence somewhere else um, and you have attached a few dates to that, so you might have a volcanic ash deposit that, that you can, you can um, measure the age of radiometrically um, 
So you, you might know, okay, species A, then species B, then species C, then species D through time. Then if you go someplace where there are a lot of fossils and you find species A, you know about what time it is. Um, so that's, that's sort of, yeah, we, we do a lot of, of collecting fossils in the field to try to figure out where we are in time. And I forgot to ask you, what was the fossil that you found that was the Eureka moment? Well, it was it was uh, coming back from a long uh, hike. Uh, I think it was July third, two thousand five, uh, and um, and uh, I was with a student who had never been in the field before, and we came up across a hill. It was probably three or four in the afternoon. It was kind of uh, it was maybe a hundred or something, and. Um, and we had missed lunch, and he was out of water, and you know, think it was time to go back to the car, uh, which was probably a couple miles away. And and we were coming down across this hill, and I looked over and I saw, hmm, that's kind of interesting. That looks a little darker over there, and maybe there's sort of some vague shape of a like a cross section of a pond or something that's in the rock. And so I went over and and hacked at it a little bit with my hammer and and uh, some rocks came out and there were leaves on the rocks and they were not leaf that was not they were not from species I'd ever seen before and I had been collecting for a for many many years in rocks that are just a little bit older and a little bit younger and so ordinarily you would expect if you have fossils from the top of the hill and they're a set of species there and you have fossils from the bottom of the hill and they're the same species there you would expect to find the same species in between but i knew this was the hillside that rep- this was one of the hillsides that represented the petm so found the first fossil the first leaf fossil and it was not a species i'd seen before and the second one was a different species, but not one I'd seen before. And that, that was immediate, just kind of, okay, this has got to be the PETM because that's the only explanation for why you would have a whole different set of species here than you did just before or just after. Does that mean the species before and after came back after the bottleneck of some sort because they were back again? That's a that's a really good question. Um, so um, there is some extinction associated with the PETM, the beginning of the PETM, but um, one of the reasons it had been so hard to find in plant fossils, in particular, is because um, there's not an enormous amount of extinction. And what that tells us is exactly what you just said. It means that local populations were extirpated you know they were wiped out you know the the plants that grew on the river beds and river floodplains in this area um, they were nailed because we don't find any of those species during the PETM but they must have survived somewhere because then they had to have some place to come back from and uh, one of the big questions is where did they survive we this is um, a basin in the Rockies where there were mountain ranges even back then along both sides. So one possibility is that there could be populations that survived in the mountains. And we don't have any deposits of this age left in the mountains, so we can't check that directly. Um, and it's also possible that they, um, those species were broadly distributed enough so they survived far to the north. So maybe, you know, up in Arctic Canada. They may have survived there, and then at the end of the event when the climate cooled, they dispersed back down into the mid-latitudes, like in Wyoming. So to bring it back to global warming again, it just seems like we're all eventually going to be moving to the North Pole to wait this out. Yeah, I've been thinking, uh, sort of looking ahead, well, okay, if we are uh, now invoking a new, you know, one of these thermal maxima, uh, gosh, can the human race just make it somewhere for 150,000 years or so, which is how long that last one lasted? Um, but actually, just for fun now, I want to change the subject and then we'll come back because we're just getting on a roll. But I did a geology field course in that same part of Wyoming a long time ago. And uh, I remember one purplish layer, and I bet you you know about this. It was called the Morrison layer, and it was about 60-some-odd million years ago, and you would find these gastroliths, these rounded, polished rocks, which were 
uh, stones that dinosaurs ate to, to, with their food to help them grind up their food. And, of course, birds do this also, and dinosaurs are sort of related to birds. So, anyway, uh, I imagine you probably found a bunch of those there. And am I roughly right about the time frame for the Morrison layer? Well, the, the Morrison's uh, quite a bit older, so that's about 145, 150, 155 million years ago. Um, but, well, you know, it's, what, what's a few tens of millions of years among friends but uh and it's it is they are the most famous dinosaur bearing deposits in north america the morrison formation it extends all the way from the southwestern u.s uh, up into montana and um that's where the the big sauropod dinosaurs are most common in north america um and the gastroliths and yeah it's an amazing formation i've actually never worked in the Morrison. Uh, it's a little bit... It, there are plant fossils in the Morrison, too, which many people forget because they're a little focused on those dinosaurs. But They get all the glory, but the plants are important, too. That's a basis for all the other life forms to sort of survive on land. So let's, let's talk about some of your other research that's not in the field looking for fossils that's maybe testing how plants adapted as the earth got hotter and more full of carbon. What, what are you doing with plants these days? So, um, you know, one of the big questions in, um, in earth science, and, and again, this is one of those things that um, it's important for the future as well as for understanding the past, is um, how much warming do you get from a given amount of extra CO2 in the atmosphere? And we know that it causes warming. And we have estimates of how much warming it, it causes, but um, we really need to tighten the estimates up because it makes a huge difference if it if it if the planet warms two degrees with if you double the amount of CO two and the planet warms two degrees, that's very different for us than if it warms four degrees. And those are both numbers that could be right. Um, and another aspect of that is that. Um, because many components of the way this planet works are slow, it can take hundreds or thousands of years for the full effects to be felt of a given amount of CO2 addition. So that's very hard to measure in the here and now because if it takes a thousand years or 5,000 years for the full effects to be felt, you won't know whether you were right for 5,000 years. We don't really want to wait, right? So looking back, we hope to be able to do that there's a big catch. We have pretty good control over how temperature changed in the past. We have very poor control um, over how much CO2 was in the atmosphere. So we know that back about a million years because um, there are bubbles trapped in the oldest ice and you can, scientists can, you know, crack open the ice and and me actually measure the concentration of CO2 in those bubbles. But once, once you're out of ice, you're out of direct evidence. There's no fossil air from 56 million years ago. So the experiments that we're doing, and these are being led by uh, one of my colleagues at the Smithsonian, Rich Barclay, um, we're, we're studying ginkgo trees. And you might know, about, you might know of ginkgo. It's, uh, um, you know, it's uh, sometimes sold as an herbal supplement for memory. And it's a very uh, unusual plant in that uh, there are ginkgo fossils that go back 60, 80 million years that look almost identical to the living species, ginkgo biloba. And um, that sort of gave us this idea. Other people have worked on the same, on the same uh, notion, which is that if, it's, um, if we have um, what sometimes people call a living fossil, um, uh, then perhaps its response to CO2 today is very similar to the response that its, its uh, relatives had uh, 50 or 60 million years ago. So we decided to uh, grow uh, these ginkgo trees in high CO2 chambers. Um, and uh, we have them growing at about 400 parts per million, which is what the concentration is in the atmosphere right now. We also have them growing at 600 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere and 800 parts per million and 1,000 parts per million. And we, we um, 
the world was so warm 56 million years ago that we think it's quite possible there could have been something like a thousand parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. So what we're trying to do is, is um, grow the plants under these different CO2 concentrations and then observe um, changes in the, in the leaf anatomy. And the idea is that if we can sort of calibrate their response and see... Um, measure changes in the anatomy of the leaves that that occur with increasing CO2 concentration, then we might be able to collect fossil ginkgos. We, we actually have already collected the fossils in this case um, and measure the same anatomical features in the fossils and use that to estimate how much CO2 was in the atmosphere 56 million years ago. And are you close to having a result from this? I'd say we are... Uh, very happy to be well begun on the study. Uh, it's been going on for about a year now, and um, we're, we have a, a clear path to funding for extending it for another three years. It, we think it's going to take the trees a little while to realize what conditions they're under. Um, so um, this is, you know, it's, a, it's one of these promising things. If we can crack this problem, if we can actually say, you know, this is how much CO2 is in the atmosphere and you go into the PETM and it goes up by whatever amount and we already know how, how much the temperature increased. Um, that would be an extremely powerful tool to say, okay, this is, this is when you bump the CO2 up in, in the atmosphere, this is how much warming you get and this is how long it lasts and this is, these are the other things that follow from that. Right now we just don't know... We know we've got the effect, but we don't. We can't directly measure the cause, the the CO two concentration in the atmosphere back then. So, we'll we'll find out. I mean, I, I uh, um, this is one of those things where if you if you can get an answer, um, it could be a pretty big deal. Well, I hope you succeed. And it sounds like you're a reversing reverse engineering detective trying to figure out what happened from recreating the conditions that might have been. Here And did you say you think that might help you understand the cause? Well, um, one of the big um, mysteries of the PETM is where did the carbon come from? So we think, again, it might have been, it might have been um, kicked off by a volcanic activity, but um, there are chemical changes that I uh, probably don't need to go into the details of here, but um, there are chemical changes that that help us figure out how much carbon was released, but they're open to a variety of interpretations. And so um, uh, it could be that there was... Um, the, the range of possible values is something like from 2 trillion tons to up to... Some people have said up to 7 or 8 trillion tons of carbon being released. That would be... At the high end, that's more carbon than there is in all the fossil fuels on this planet right now. And at the low end, it's maybe half as much as is in the fossil fuel reservoirs today. That's what uh, Jim Sakos was saying, that if you released all the oil that's currently underground, that's what you'd get was this giant warming trend right. like we had millions of years ago. Well, in the five minutes left, uh, Scott Wing, tell us something about what you're excited for in the future. It sounds like the Ginkgo Project is going to yield a huge aha moment in a couple of years. Um, and you're having a big opening of your fossil collection at the Smithsonian. Anything else ahead for you that you'd like to share with us that you haven't yet? Well, um, you know that I keep going out every year <laughs> to find new fossils, and I'm always uh, excited to see what turns up uh, after another summer of trudging around in, in the Badlands um, in one place or another. And um, so... There's always that. I guess, you know, collecting fossils is a little bit like fishing. It, uh, you never know when you might get a big one. <laughs> and and that's, part of, it's, that's part of what keeps you doing it is you just you hope to get lucky. Um, so, um, Have you ever found something you weren't even looking for, like a giant mammoth tusk or something, when you weren't even, like, that's not what you were after, but you found something incredible fossil-wise? Yeah. No, I mean, it does happen. You just, you're out looking for one thing and you find something different and uh, sometimes that's exciting, but you usually you're trying to figure out how to get somebody else to deal with that 
that discovery because you're trying, still trying to do the thing you, you set out to do. And they're heavy. I mean, do you have yeah. a bunch of people helping you Sherpas to carry them back to the car? Yeah. Usually, <laughs> usually I'm working with a, with a team of people. Thank God for grad students, right? And uh, Scott, in addition to your, uh, what you're excited about for your future as a researcher out in the wilds, uh, you know, none of us has a crystal ball, even the most brilliant uh, researchers, but it's great to talk to people who actually know stuff. And uh, what's your take on the future of not just your career, but the human race? <laughs> you know, wh where are we headed? What can we do uh, th that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, th I think about that a lot too, you know. Um, and uh, I, my 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 watch phrase has become urgent hope. Uh, I think we 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 need to avoid falling into a kind of pit of despair over how fast things are changing, and you know, they, undeniably they are changing in many ways that are unfortunate. We don't like them; they're harmful to people. They're they cause you know some of the changes cause death and and sickness and starvation in in amongst millions of people i mean i i don't mean to diminish the the severity of the changes that were that were that were causing and at the same time i i feel these are the these are the problems that we're bequeathing to the generations that follow they're going to be smart people they're going to be figuring out ways to deal with them so we we should be trying to minimize the harm we leave behind and we should also be starting to think about how do we um uh how do we respond to the to the changing conditions because you know the the, the thing is that people have always changed the planet they they change the environment to make themselves more comfortable it's just that we're so much more powerful now at doing that 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 um in seeking to make ourselves more comfortable we we um, create all these unintended side effects. And um, I think that's really what drives me to want to know more about how the planet works is I want to understand what the, the unintended side effects are so that we can do something about it. And I think that's really, you know, if we, uh, you know, if we, 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 can, we can change, we do change the planet. We always have changed the planet. We are now changing the planet really fast and in really big ways. And we need to uh, we need to take that seriously. We need to think hard about how we can um, basically reduce the amount that we're changing things and the rate at which we're changing things. And we need to think about how to how to um, basically uh, be happy with the with and and. Uh, create a better world out of the out of these changes well i want to thank you scott wing for being here with us on planet watch and um, good luck on your ginkgo studies and i hope you learn a lot in the next couple of years that will help us figure out the next few centuries thank you very much it's fun to talk with you that's planet watch for this week with your host rachel ann goodman and joe jordan you're listening to maya rodriguez and tommy you can catch the podcast at radio planet watch I'm sorry, planetwatchradio.com. Keep an eye on the sky. Thanks for listening.